Um, Genesis chapter 5 is where we're taking our text today. We're kind of unpacking the story of Genesis as Moses tells it, right? And Moses is telling us the story. And I actually have, um, we'll put it up on the slide in a minute, but I have uh, a chart that kind of, um, that we've placed kind of the whole storyline of Genesis through a little puzzle box. And we have already covered the first little section of the puzzle box. Let's put it on the screen. This was the one that I wanted to show you guys last week, but I forgot it. So here it is. This is the storyline of the book of Genesis as Moses tells us the story. And in this story, there's a whole lot for us to be able to glean from. And last week, we actually finished that second part of invitation um, in the puzzle box. So today, we're actually going to hit disruption. Um, Actually, we're going to hit kind of Adam and disruption today. Um, And then get into further kind of like um, next week we'll hit some more disruption. And then in the weeks to follow, we'll hit so many of the different figures that God uses in putting so many of the pieces um, back together in his overarching major plan of redemption. And so we're looking at the kind of the broad stroke story that Moses tells us of Genesis. And if you can recall last week, if you guys were here last week, if not, I'll just kind of summarize it because it's actually a really important part of the story. Last week we talked about creation and we covered really Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4 last week. And we talked about the perfect creation that God made. And we talked about how there was shalom in creation and what shalom means. Shalom means that everything in life is well and good. Everything, you like that well and good? You like that little plug for the coffee shop? Um, Everything is operating the way that it's supposed to. That's what shalom means. Um, Things are with us, with each other, and with God the way that they're supposed to be. And then we talked about our purpose in creation. Our purpose um, that God made for us, who we are and why we exist. And we talked about how we as human beings that God made in his likeness are image bearers and how we're to reflect God's glory to the whole world around us. And that's kind of our role as God's creation is is image bearers. Then we talked about our purpose also to steward creation. And we're supposed to do it in partnership with him. And we're supposed to multiply over the face of the earth. And we're supposed to cultivate this undeveloped, beautiful world that God had made. And we get to use our creative abilities in God's likeness to be able to develop and create other things. That is our purpose. And to use those giftings that God gave us to steward the creation that he set in front of us. Awesome, awesome stuff. In fact, we get that from, it's called the cultural mandate, and we get that from Genesis 1.28. I'm going to put that slide on the screen because this is actually a really important verse for us to know. We'll probably go back to it periodically. Genesis 1.28 said this. It says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea." and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's the creation mandate. That's the cultural mandate that God give us, gave us as human beings. And then, after that, the last piece that we kind of focused on that Moses is telling us through this story was the plight of mankind. We talked about the fall. And we talked about that devastating choice that Adam and Eve made to reject God's invitation to a perfect harmony relationship with him. And when they rebelled against God and the downfall of that rebellion was really bringing death and destruction to the entire human race. 
And so today, we're actually going to kind of talk about a lot of that disrupt, dis, destruction or that disruption that happened as a result of the fall. So we're going to take our text from Genesis chapter 5, and we're also going to take our text today from Genesis chapter 6. And so we're going to read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 5, um, and this is what it says on the slide. You can read it. If you don't have your Bibles, you can turn there. Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 says this. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. And when Adam lived, Adam had lived 130 years, and he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. And then from Genesis 5 through the rest, 5, 5 through the rest of the chapter, it goes on from all of these descendants after Adam, and Moses describes who they were, how long they lived, and that they died. And what I find so interesting in this passage in Genesis chapter 5 is that it says that Seth was made in the likeness of Adam. And I kind of scratched my head when I read that because Adam was made in the likeness of God, remember? Adam was made as God's image bearer. And now it specifically says when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his likeness. But then Adam lived 130 years. And after he did, he had Seth. And after he had Seth, it says Seth was made in the likeness of Adam. I wonder what Moses is saying there. It just, it just kind of dawned on me. I wonder if... If Moses is basically telling us that things are different. Adam was an image bearer of God, but then because of his choice, because of the fall of mankind, Adam now has a marred image of God. He's not bearing God's image the way that he's supposed to. Now he's kind of bearing a marred image of God. And so Seth, his son that followed him, is bearing Adam's likeness, which isn't the perfect likeness that he was supposed to be bearing. Does that make sense? It's almost like Moses is saying, it already started. The marring has already happened throughout the generations. Regardless if that's what Moses' intent is in kind of explaining it that way, the reality of this passage is that this is the first place in the Bible that death is mentioned. And it's mentioned a lot. Moses is basically saying, look, he lived and he died. He lived and he died. Ten out of ten people now die. This is the reality of the depravity of the human race. Death is rampant. It's unavoidable for all mankind now. Now, death gets passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. And not only does death get passed on from generation to generation, but so does corruption. And that's when Moses goes into chapter 6. Check this out. This is where we really kind of get an idea of how corrupt the world was becoming so fast after the fall. Let's read Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. This is what it says. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans, that the daughters of humans were beautiful. They married any of them they chose, and then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. Now this is where it gets interesting. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, there were heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so... There's a lot of unanswered questions in this passage. I hate having to teach these types of things because there's no real answer that we know of. There's all sorts of different camps that have all sorts of opposing views. And so, um, really, I'm not going to get too derailed by some of these theological debates because keep in mind that we want to glean the message that Moses is telling us by creating the bigger picture, by telling us the story, right? And we want to know the story that Moses is saying and catch the, the lesson through the story that Moses wants us to know. It's almost like the old adage, you know, that, that says we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Moses is painting this picture for us, and so let's really focus on the bigger picture. But because this isn't our text, the Nephilim and all these interesting questions, I think we should probably at least talk about it a little bit. At least give a couple of the theories, because there's two really main schools of thought behind this major question that is been wrestled with in theology for so long. What's the question? The question is, what in the world are Nephilim? What is a Nephilim? What are these men of renown, these giants, these beasts that Moses is talking about? And one school of thought says this. One school of thought says the Nephilim are actually created because the sons of God were fallen angels. And they get that idea of the sons of God being fallen angels because in Job chapter 1, verse 4, it talks about Satan came to God with the sons of God, the fallen angels, and approached God and they started talking about Job. And so now, one school of thought says, these sons of God actually came to the earth and saw the daughters of men, human women, married them, had relationships with them, and they had kids. And those kids were some kind of crazy, weird, demonic half-breed that, um, that were these massive giants called Nephilim and that were so wicked and evil. And the idea behind that school of thought is that this was Satan's evil ploy, his cunning way of polluting the human race so badly that no redeemer could come. It's an interesting school of thought. Now, the opposing side would say that is absolutely wrong because there is no biblical evidence whatsoever of demons or fallen angels having relationships with women. And not only is it not proved biblically, but there is no thing in world history that could ever say that that's possible. It's preposterous to think that. And so the other school of thought is that the sons of God, which is another kind of compelling view, the sons of God are actually godly descendants from the line of Seth. 
And these godly descendants from Seth's line, direct from Adam to Seth to now these sons of God, these direct descendants from Seth that were godly, looked to the daughters of men, and the daughters of men were the ungodly descendants from the line of Cain. Remember, Cain killed his brother Abel? And so now these godly descendants of Seth broke the moral boundaries that God gave them and found these women, these ungodly women of Cain, attractive and married whoever they chose. And because they did, their kids were very corrupt and they weren't giants or they weren't half-breeds or anything like that. They were just very wicked, wicked men called Nephilim. And they were, they were, they were really kind of praised for their wickedness because that's how bad the world had gotten at that point. That's another very interesting theory. Regardless of those two theories, and I'm not going to talk any more about them, the idea is clear. Moses is saying the world was in major trouble. <laughs> people were so wicked. Every imagination of people's hearts were only evil continually, and the world was so wicked, and it was breaking God's heart. He was grieved by it. That's what that means when Moses says that God regretted that he made mankind. It means that God was deeply grieved. God doesn't regret like we regret. And so it's hard for us to think about that. Because when we regret something, it's because we made a mistake, right? Oops, I regret the decision I make. I blew it. God doesn't make mistakes. That is outside of his character. God doesn't, everything that God does is good and right. So his regret is really, the, what Moses is saying is God was grieved because humanity was so broken. There's one thing in our regret, even though that we do things wrong and God doesn't, there's one thing in our regret that we can share with God in his regret, and that's grief. Because when we do do wrong things, when we do make bad decisions, we do grieve. We grieve brokenness all around us. I was with a guy in South Africa a couple weeks ago that regretted the decision that he made, and he was grieving deeply. He was actually the president of the school that we were visiting, and he has nine kids. Four of them are adopted, little African kids, and I think five of them, or it's five and four, I can't remember which way around, are his biological kids. And he decided to let all of his kids go on a road trip with their mom, his wife, and so all nine of them packed up in the van, and she took off on this great road trip, and on her way, wherever they were going, she got tired, fell asleep, went off the road, rolled the van, and one of their biological boys was killed. And all eight other kids were taken to the hospital in various conditions, some of them critical. And I saw that man a week later and saw the grief on his face. He had just lost his son, and eight other of his kids were in the hospital, broken, and one son dead. The grief was all over him. And I think that's what Moses is saying, is that's the grief. But that grief that this friend of mine in South Africa had, that's only a sliver of the grief that God was feeling when the world was so wicked. Yes, God feels, and he grieves for the wickedness. It's horrible. It's devastating. What's happening to the world is this. We humans had taken the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply, and we corrupted its seed. And so we're still multiplying, right? We're still multiplying, but instead of multiplying life and, and beauty and all of these things, we're multiplying death. And we're multiplying corruption. 
And so we've really corrupted the seed of the cultural mandate, and that's the corruption of sin, as it just continues through generation to generation and goes on and on and on and on. It's like an evil, like horrible gene trait that all of us carry that we have to pass on to everybody else. Jim, sin just corrupts whatever we're around. And that's the state of the world. And that's what Moses is describing for us here. I mean, it's crazy. Think about it. Kids. Let's talk about kids again. You don't have to teach kids how to lie. <laughs> you don't have to teach them how to how to be tricky or how to deceive or how to be selfish. They do it pretty good naturally. You do have to teach them how to be good because we're all bent towards wickedness. We all carry that trait of wickedness. And that's the horrible reality of sin that leads to corruption. You know what corruption does is it's like cancer. It just continues to grow. Corruption is like rust where it just continues to spread. And that's what happened with the world. Sin is continuing to spread not only from generation to generation, but also from people to people that we touch, that we interact with. It's horribly wicked. It's, it's so fertile, you know? I mean, look at the psychology of the family. This is really interesting. I'm not a psychologist, and I don't even pretend to be. But I do read a little bit. And studies have shown that um, abusive parents tend to have kids that are abusive. And that doesn't make sense to me. But then you think about these poor kids that are getting abused by their parents, and the reality is that they have such low self-worth because they go home and mom and dad treat them like trash. They abuse them, they hit them, they yell at them or whatever. Their insecurities are so deep, their self-worth is so low that they've got to go to the schoolyard and beat up other kids so they can feel a little bit better about themselves. So they can have some kind of sense of control because everything at home is so out of control. The reality of it is that hurt people hurt others because it's like cancer. It's just corruption continues from generation to generation. Alcoholics tend to breed more alcoholics. It's a state of fact. This is really interesting. Um, Kids that grow up having to parent their parents oftentimes grow up as disengaged parents. And you would think it would be the opposite, right? But but the tendency, and of course there's exceptions to everything, but the tendency in this case is for when these kids grow up having to parent their parents, then they grow up as adults and they realize, man, I was robbed of my childhood. And so they go out and play, and the people that usually pay for that are their kids. Because we just continue to infect each other. That's the corruption that was breaking God's heart. Sin is so incredibly fertile, but it's also fatal. It's fatal in that it severed our relationships with each other, and it severed our relationship with God. And what is death? It's separation from God. But in all of this, I know this is a really down-like message. (laughs) There's There's a ray of hope here. In all of this, seriously, in this dark, dark story that Moses is telling us, there is a shining light. And it's this last verse in verse 8 of chapter 6 when it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Without that verse, all of humanity would be in ruins. Without that verse, there would have been no hope for anything. But Noah found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. That is huge. Now I have a message to preach. Now I've got something cool to talk about other than we just infect each other with wickedness. Life is much better than that with Jesus because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What's grace? Two things biblically. Grace is it's favor. Grace is acceptance. It's undeserved acceptance from God. Paul explains it the best in Ephesians chapter 2, right here, 2 verses 8 and 9. He says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There is nothing that we have done to receive acceptance from God. It's all His grace. I love the way grace is described often when it's, to, it's, it's described as unearned, undeserved favor, or the cheesy acronym G-R-A-C-E is God's riches at Christ's expense. I'm okay with using cheesy acronyms. That's fine, because it's meaningful. Grace is awesome. But you know what? Grace is something else biblically. Not only is it acceptance that we don't deserve, it's sufficiency. It's actually empowerment for service for living life the way that it's supposed to be lived. It starts to bring us back to shalom. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Check this out. But he said to be my grace. Okay, so Paul is praying to God about this thorn in his flesh, some weird ailment or some weird problem that he did not want anymore. And he asked God three times to get rid of this thing. And this is what God's answer is. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, no, you can't have that taken away, Paul. But in your weakness, my grace will make you strong, he says. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more, Paul says, gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. The grace gave him the power to handle whatever ailments that he had to handle. Paul says this. This is one of my favorites about grace. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's empowerment. I didn't know for so long that grace wasn't just acceptance, but it's also empowerment to help me live life the way that it's supposed to live. That is awesome. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because of grace, everything changed. And this is the hinge of the story that Moses is telling us. The story from this point on totally changes because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and the story gets better and better, and better, and better until Jesus. And we'll get to the unfolding parts of the story, but I do want to talk about one thing about grace that I think is so awesome, is because not only does grace change our circumstances, not only does it change life around us, grace changes us. And that's what I love about grace. I love the stories, and we're talking about generations, we're talking about patterns, we're talking about the, the fertile um, corruption that sin has on all of mankind, but grace changes us. And I love those stories of people that have lived in patterns of sin from generation to generation to generation, or they've just, their whole entire life has been a horrible, endless cycle of sin that they cannot break, and then they find God's grace, and everything changes. 
And I don't know how much of this story that Moses is telling us was actually God just giving his grace to Noah or, or how much of it was Noah receiving God's grace. It's not really clear to me. I don't know how much was God's wooing Noah in to be a recipient of his grace or how much of it was Noah just choosing to accept God's grace. But the reality is that God's grace is available to every single one of us. But we have to respond to it. We have to accept it. And when we receive it, then we get the sufficiency. That's my story, actually. I come from a very broken environment. My, my early childhood years were horribly broken. Um, I grew up with two brothers, and the three of us boys were deeply wounded by our father. And when I was about 10 years old, um, our dad finally left for good. One day he was there, and he gave us boys all the promises in the world. He promised the moon to us, and the next day he was literally gone, and we never saw him again for the rest of our lives. He full-on disappeared, decided he didn't want to be a dad anymore. And so what that did to us, three boys, is it devastated us. It hurt us so badly. But what happens with hurt people? Without God's grace, they hurt others. And we responded to that pain so much differently. But all three of us responded to that in hurtful ways. My older brother, um, his was the most obvious, but he was very angry growing up. Incredibly angry because, um, because his life was not the way that he expected it to be. And so he fought a lot. He was, the, he was the tough guy. And I think his thought was, well, I'm not, not going to be robbed of my manhood because I don't have a dad. So I'm going to prove my manhood by beating everybody else up. And he beat everybody else up. He was the tough guy in town. Unfortunately, his hurt carried over to other people's faces. His hurt hurt others. My little brother, my little brother, he just became the life of the party. That kid partied, knew how to party well. But in that lifestyle, he, he had so many complicated relationships, so many damaging relationships, so many that I would even have close enough time to go into, um, that caused a lot of pain and destruction everywhere he went. Because why? Hurt people hurt. Sin is fertile, and the corruption just seeps out to everybody that are, they're around. Me, I became the clown. I wanted to make anybody laugh, and I wanted to be accepted by everybody. Looking back, I realized that longing for acceptance was based on deep insecurity because of abandonment. And as a kid, and growing up all through my adolescence, I would do anything to make anybody laugh, but unfortunately I hurt a lot of people because I wanted to make people laugh at other people's expenses. I would do anything to get accepted by the in crowd and in that I would hurt a lot of people around me. Why? Because hurt people hurt. I think I'm belaboring the point but it's the reality of the corruption of sin is that it seeps out and infects everybody that we're around. And then when I was 21 years old something amazing happened. I was walking down Medford where I was living at the time and I was, had been out of the house since I was 16. I lived in all these crazy, weird party environments. And I'm walking down Main Street. And to this day, I still have never seen a street evangelist in Medford. But there was one that day. And he preached at me. And it wrecked me. And I, he offered me God's grace. And I accepted it. And everything changed. Everything changed. I'll never forget how the lights just turned on. 
I viewed myself so differently. No longer was I the victim. Now I was the child, the child of God. Now I was a son. And this is where it gets really cool because I went, started going to this really large church in southern Oregon, and right away I noticed something. I noticed that there were tons of kids in this church that didn't have dads. And so you know what I did? I started a big brother club. And I started grabbing all of these kids without dad and spending my Saturdays with them. And this was the first time in my life that I actually started to help other people instead of hurt them. And here's the crazy part about it. This is the redemptive aspect of grace. I was helping them out of place, out of a place where I hurt the most. I was helping them out of a place where I had been damaged and wounded. And now, because of God's grace... Instead of replicating more pain and corruption, I'm repairing it, and I'm helping them. That is the cultural mandate coming back to the way it should be, isn't it? Isn't that cool? So awesome. God's grace changes everything. And so my prayer for us, this church, this community, is simply just to be those that know how to bask, receive God's grace not just so that we can be accepted by God, so that we can be the ambassadors, the people that are a blessing, that are reversing the cultural mandate. Instead of, instead of going out and multiplying corruption, we're going to go around to the people that we're around and we're going to multiply correction. We're going to multiply life-giving and, and fruitful people. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's us. That's God's grace that is available for us. So cool. So I'm simply going to pray for God's grace, which is always available, and then we're simply going to receive it. Amen?